I hope that you walked away last Sunday with a good understanding of what Jesus means when he says, blessed are. And, and what Jesus is talking about when he uses that word blessed. Are you blessed? Okay, amen, I hope so. Blessed is a long-term state. It is, a, it is not a temporary thing. It's not circumstantial. It's not based on anything exterior. It's an internal satisfaction of your soul. And that satisfaction of our soul is found only in Jesus. A contentment, a happiness, a gladness to be able to say, I'm happy, I'm satisfied in Jesus. And I'll remind you of the, the definition I gave you last week. The blessedness of the Beatitudes is a supreme and satisfying gladness found in a life that is rested in and right with God. I kind of think about the, the, the blessedness of the Beatitudes as, as that being able to breathe, you know? Like to be able to just take a deep breath and to, and to rest easy. Have you ever had somebody say that to you? Like just, just rest easy, like take it easy. There's almost like that sense of, of peace and calm that's in our life because of our relationship with Jesus. And this is what he's talking about when he says, blessed are these. Um, and that word, blessed, I want to give you a little context too, a little cultural context. In ancient Greece, the Greeks used to use this word to familiar with, at least, at least somewhat familiar with Greek mythology and the Greek gods. They used that word that Greek word blessed to describe the state of the Greek gods as they were on Mount Olympus. Because what did the Greek gods on Mount Olympus get to do? They were pretty happy, right? They enjoyed the privilege of being gods. Um, they basically lounged around and enjoyed being deity. Uh, they enjoyed being gods. And they would use this word happy, the same word that Jesus used to describe the gods. They were enjoying the privileges of being gods and they were unaffected by the physical world. And so Jesus takes this word and begins to use it to describe people who are part of the kingdom. We might use the phrase in this culture, living the good life. You've heard people say that before. Living the good life. This is, this is what blessedness means. It's someone who enjoys the privileges of a good, fulfilled, satisfying life. So this is what the people heard when Jesus stood up and said, blessed are these. That's the picture that came to their minds. But then what began to happen was immediately, even in this very first beatitude, Jesus says, blessed are. And then what comes out of his mouth seems to be the complete opposite pathway to what everyone would have conceived in their minds would be the path to this kind of happiness. And so we're going to begin to look at this very first one. And this first one's important. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Let's, let's start with verse 1 again, and then, we'll, and then we're going to look specifically 
at verse 3 and, and think about that this morning. So Matthew writes and says, When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, one thing I want you to know as we begin to look through these Beatitudes, the Beatitudes have a progressive nature to them. And what that means is, is it's very similar to when we were doing the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus doesn't just randomly throw out all of these Beatitudes. There's a, there's a, a process and an order to the way he, he reveals these. And so we need to know that as we're beginning to look at this list, that the first one is going to be important, right? Jesus, in his mind, had to choose which one of these he was going to show first and, 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 and say first. And so there's a reason that he put this one first. And I hope by the end of this morning that you'll understand why. But each one of these statements reveals something about the nature of the kingdom of God. And in revealing the nature of the kingdom, he's teaching a principle. And so for us to understand what that principle is, we need to know what he means when he says poor in spirit. So you may have some ideas already as to what that means. When we hear the word poor, something automatically comes to your mind, doesn't it? We, we, when we hear the word poor, we think of, of financially. We think of materially, people who don't have money, people who don't have things. And that's, we're, we're pretty sure that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about material wealth. He's not talking about money or possessions or any of those things. But we can take the characteristics of the physically poor and then try to understand what Jesus means when he's talking about the poor in spirit. This word poor um, in, in the Greek that, that Jesus uses is a, is a word that doesn't just mean poor. It means poor, poor. Okay? Like super poor, bottom of the barrel poor. Like some of us when we tell stories about like when we were growing up as kids or maybe if you're a grandparent, you're telling stories about, you know how parents and grandparents always have kind of throughout the years talked about Oh, well, we didn't have this and we didn't have that. Like, and, and, you, and we kind of make a joke of it. <clears throat> but we're talking about, like, this is the word that was used to describe the, the beggars. Okay, these were the, these were the poor people who had absolutely nothing. They were reduced to begging for alms. They were helpless. They were needy. They had absolutely nothing of value. And this is the word to describe that. They weren't just poor. They were like begging poor. And so if Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So if he's not talking about money, he's not talking about material things, but he's talking about this state of neediness, he applies that to our spiritual lives. And so Jesus is not talking about physical poverty here. He's talking about a spiritual poverty. And so you could take all of these adjectives that we would use to describe someone who is physically poor in this state. 
and apply them to our spiritual life. So Jesus is talking about somebody who is a spiritual beggar. Someone who spiritually is helpless. Someone who is needy spiritually. Someone who has absolutely nothing of value to give. And he's applying that to our spiritual life. The internal state of our spirit is what he's talking about here. Not not the external state of what we have, but the internal nature of our spirit. As we approach God, we come as a beggar. We come as someone who has absolutely nothing of value. And so here's the first point I want you to remember. The poor in spirit approach God with empty hands in prideless humility. So being poor in spirit is all about humility. And when we talk about humility in the church, that can be a tricky thing because there is true biblical humility, which is what Jesus is talking about here. And then there's also sort of this superficial humility, right? And and sometimes we might exhibit that in our own lives. Sometimes we may see other people exhibit it. And it's pretty easy sometimes to tell false humility from true humility. And Jesus is talking about true humility here. It's, it's, it's not even so much about the humility that we show toward one another, which, of course, that's, that's going to play out later in the Beatitudes. But what, what Jesus is talking about here is the way you approach God. What is the state of your mind and your heart and your soul and your spirit when you stand before almighty, omnipotent, Supreme God that is king of the universe. How, how do you approach him? This, this idea of being poor in spirit is all throughout scripture. I want to show you a couple of examples in the Psalms. Um, in Psalm 51, uh, verses 1 and 2, 1 through 3 in Psalm 51, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 17. But look at what the psalmist writes in Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. Look at verse 3. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. That's the state of being poor in spirit. My sin is always before me. God, I'm coming to you realizing who I am in comparison to who you are. And then if we skip down in that same psalm to verse 17, the sacrifice pleasing to God is what kind of spirit? A broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart. God. This is poor in spirit. Someone who comes before God, not not with a list of reasons that God should be happy that we're coming to him. (laughs) Not not a list of of credentials as as to um, what we think we're bringing to the table. The poor in spirit say, I have nothing, God. I'm completely helpless. I'm a beggar before you. There's nothing of value that I have to bring to you. 
If you look in uh, Isaiah 66, in the second half of verse 2, God speaks and says, I will look favorably on this kind of person. And then he says, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. This is what Jesus is saying. Blessed are the ones who are poor in spirit. That in my, in my spirit, in my nature, when I come before God, I have empty hands. I have empty pockets. I don't have anything to bring. And I'm fully aware of that. Nothing to offer God. And Jesus, I said already, would have made this the first of the Beatitudes for a reason. And he presents this as the first characteristic of the kingdom. And here's the, here's the important reason that I think is for that. And you can write this note down as well. The pride-filled heart can't enter the kingdom because where self is exalted, Christ can't be. You say, well, why would Jesus put this first? I think, it, I think it becomes very clear when we begin to understand what the poor in spirit means. If we come to God with any sense of pride in our heart, we can't come into the kingdom. Because anywhere that self is exalted, Christ can't be. This is, this is what I'm afraid of. And that when we understand, too, when we, when we are sharing the gospel with people and people are responding to the gospel, the very first thing you have to know and understand to embrace and be changed by the gospel is how much you desperately need it. The gospel can't be an option. It can't be something that's a good idea that you want to do to already enhance what you think you already have. You come, you come to the gospel, you come to God empty-handed with no self-exaltation at all. I'm afraid that some people try to come to God and try to come into a relationship with Jesus and when they say they're inviting Jesus into their life or into their heart, what maybe they really mean is they're inviting Jesus to share the throne of their life. Basically to say, God, I'm on the throne of my life, but I want Jesus to come and sit with me. Folks, Jesus doesn't sit on anybody else's throne. <laughs> he doesn't share the throne with anybody. And, and we have to really evaluate our minds and our hearts. If that's our idea of what being a Christian is, that I'm going to keep taking over, I'm going to keep ruling my life, I'm going to keep calling the shots, but I want Jesus to come and help me, then you don't understand the gospel. Jesus is my co-pilot. It's the dumbest bumper sticker that's ever been invented. He doesn't co-pilot anything. He flies the plane and you are desperately holding on. <laughs> if there's any, any lack of humility in our life when we come to him, 
then, then we're not going to we're not going to be changed by the gospel. We're not going to be able to come into the kingdom. And you say, well, Eric, that, that sounds kind of harsh. I mean, that, that, that sounds really hard. Well, it's just simply what Jesus said. I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 18. We're in Matthew already. This is chapter 5. Now, later on in chapter 18, I want to read to you an encounter that you're familiar with and you know, but I want to put it in the context with what Jesus is saying in chapter 5. What happens here in chapter 18? If you look at verse 1, Matthew again writes and said, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, So who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a small child and had him stand among them. Truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So take into consideration what Jesus says in chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now in chapter 18... You wonder, have you guys even gotten it? Because they come to Jesus and they ask him this question. Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What a pride-filled question. Do we understand what they are asking? Jesus, who is the greatest? What they want to know is what's the pecking order, Jesus? What's the rankings? If you were going to line us up, because they have this idea that Jesus is bringing the kingdom, and they don't really understand yet what kind of kingdom he's bringing, but they think they've got a place in it, and they want to know what's the ranking. They're asking Jesus for power rankings among the disciples. <laughs> says, which one is going to be the greatest? What a, what, a, what a question that's loaded with so much pride. And Jesus, look at how he responds to them in verse 3. He says, truly I tell you, he calls a child to himself. And he, you, he, look at what he says. Unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom. So there's a condition here. Jesus is very blunt. And what Jesus basically says to them, I, I, you know, the, the international Eric version would be, you guys are worried about what order you're going to be in and how you're going to be ranked in the kingdom. Unless you get your heart right, you're not even going to make it into the kingdom. You, the last thing you should be worried about is what order you're going to be in because your heart's are not in the state where you can even be in the kingdom because he says, unless you turn, you won't enter the kingdom. And that's a, if I were a disciple in that moment, what Jesus is saying is, the state of your heart right now, you're, you're not in. Because he says, unless you turn, unless you change, unless something happens in you, where the, your, your pride is, is killed and you, that pride that's in you that causes you to ask a question like that, unless that dies, 
you won't even make it, much less be worried about what order you're going to be. Unless your heart changes. But then Jesus in verse 4 says something that, that I think should encourage us. He says, unless you turn, unless your heart gets right and your humility comes to life and, and your pride dies, you won't even make it. But then he says in verse 4, whoever humbles himself, if you're able to do that, if that humility is able to come into your, into your life and you are able to embrace that, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, he says in verse 4. So you may think, well, is Jesus contradicting himself? Because he's saying, like we know, based on everything that Jesus teaches, there is no order. There is no ranking in heaven. There's not going to be the greatest and then, and then the second greatest and the third greatest. There's no ranking. But Jesus says, somebody is going to be the greatest. Verse 4, he says, the one who humbles himself, this one is the greatest. So is that a, is that a contradictory statement? No, what that tells us is that anyone who humbles themselves will be the greatest. Everybody who humbles themselves that's in the kingdom, they will be the greatest. And so if everybody's the greatest, everybody's on the same plane. Do you see that? There is no order. There is no ranking. He says, the ones, the ones who are able to humble themselves before me like a child, they're the greatest. And everyone who does that will be the greatest and everybody's on equal footing. There's no ranking anymore. There's no pecking order in the kingdom. And isn't that good news? Isn't it good news that there isn't a ranking in the kingdom of God? You're either a part of it and you're, and you're one of those greatest that he talks about in, in verse 4. Like you're either in or you're not. There's not, a, there's not people who are going to heaven more than someone else. There's not anybody who's more a part of the kingdom of God than somebody else. There's no more pursuit of status. This world, the reason I say this is good news is because this world is, is just set up to make you pursue status. Every single thing that you do ranks you. It gives you a status. Even when you're a little kid and you're st you start school, you got the kids that make the good grades and the kids that don't. Society, they're, they're, they're the people who are beautiful, famous celebrities, then they're the people who aren't. At the job that you work at, there are levels. And, you're, and, you're, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But to say, I'm not saying don't work hard and try to, try to better yourself and improve. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying everything in the world that we live in is based on a, on a system of, of ranking and tiers. Where we're constantly trying to move up. We don't have to do that in the kingdom. Jesus says there is no order, there is no tears that you're trying to move up. And any religion who tries to teach that is teaching lies. 
Any religion that says there's these different levels to heaven and you have to work your way to this level and then, uh, but, but if you're really good, you'll get, you'll get to this level and maybe the next level, uh, folks, those are lies from the enemy. That's, there's, not, there's none of that. Jesus says, everyone who is the greatest are the ones who humble themselves before me, who come to me with empty hands and a helpless heart. And people may not realize this, but, but this pride-filled heart issue is a big deal. And I think it's a big deal even within the church. And, and when I hear people talk about why they've not surrendered to the gospel, why they've not given their lives to Christ, if there's any sense of credentials that we think we're bringing to God, then we're not really understanding the gospel. It frightens me every time I hear somebody say, well, I've got to clean my life up before I come to God. How often have you heard that? Maybe before, you, you may even think that right now. You may be that person who thinks, well, I, I, I want... I want to believe, I want to give my life to God, but my life is such a mess, I feel like I've got to clean everything up. You know what you're doing? You're trying to create credentials for yourself. You're trying to come to God. You're trying to fill up your hands with something because you think, I can't come to God empty-handed. Folks, the only way you can come to God is empty-handed. That's the only way. And so when I say I have to clean up my life, I have to get my act together before I can commit to Jesus, what I'm really saying is I'm trying to gather all the credentials I can gather so that when I come to God and ask for his forgiveness, I don't have to feel so bad. That's not the gospel that Jesus is preaching here. And that's not the spirit that Jesus says one must have to come into the kingdom. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The ones who are completely destitute with nothing to offer. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says, all of us have become like something unclean. And all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. Isaiah said this. If you are that person who thinks or feels or have even said before, well, I've got to clean up my life before I come to God. Clean up what? What do you think you're able to clean up to the point that it would be acceptable to God. That's what Isaiah says in this passage. He says, all of us have become like something unclean and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. I want you to know exactly how strong that is. I don't want to gross anybody out or be inappropriate at all. But the language there in that, and this is translated a, a, a little easier to read, it's, it's describing a, a female's menstrual cloth and this is what Isaiah says is the state of the very best cleanup you can do 
When someone says, well, I've got to clean up my life. You're not even going to get close to this. What do you think you're able to clean up? Because Isaiah says the very best you can do, the, very, the pinnacle of spiritual achievement, the pinnacle of obedience to the law as best you can, anything the very best you'll ever do will still be like that. That kind of filthy. That kind of dirty and unclean. To be poor in spirit is to know this. And to be poor in spirit is to come as you are. Empty and dirty, believing your only hope is in God's love and mercy, not in any changes that you can make in your life. So it makes sense that Jesus would let this be the first of all the Beatitudes because if we don't understand this, Jesus says, this is the only way into the kingdom. And see, you understand again the context that we talked about last week. He's saying this into a cultural culture full of Jewish religion with all of these different ideas that the way you get to God is through obedience to the traditions, obedience to the laws, obedience to all of the rabbinical laws that were created by man that, through all of these things. And, and, and the whole system of Judaism had become a works-based system of faith. And Jesus is saying none of that is going to do you any good. All of the things that you're trying to pursue to get to God are not even the way you get to God. There are lots of people who aspire to live Christian lives, but they don't realize that living the Christian life is impossible. It's impossible for you to learn to live the Christian life. And that's what's so counterintuitive to what Jesus is saying here. People think, I need to figure out how to live a Christian life before I come to Jesus. Think about how foolish that sounds. I think about it this way. You know when, you're, when you go into the store or maybe even when you were a little kid, but if you were to even go to a store like a warehouse place like Sam's or somewhere like that, and, or, or even at Walmart, and there's always stuff up on the very top shelf, and have you ever seen one of those signs that says, please ask for assistance with items on the top shelf? You know what that means? That means don't be a dummy and try to climb up there and reach and grab something that you can't reach because then you're going to make a big mess and we're going to have to come clean it up. If you need something off the top shelf, just ask somebody and we'll get it for you, right? I think people think that they can climb the shelf to reach the Christian life on their own, that they can figure it out. And Jesus is saying... The only way you're going to reach what's on the top shelf is if I take it and give it to you. The Christian life is, is something that we absolutely should aspire to, but understand it's on a shelf too high for you to reach. And the only way you're going to get it is if God takes it and puts it in his hand and he reaches down and he gives it to you. Why? Because you can't do it. You can't pay for it. You can't reach it. You can't earn it. 
and you have nothing to give in exchange for it. But this is how the kingdom comes into our lives. And I want to encourage you with this also. There's another small detail about this beatitude that's also a characteristic of the last one that we'll see. When you read all of the Beatitudes, you'll notice if you look at verse 3, which is what we've just studied, blessed are the poor in spirit, for, their, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. If you read all the others after that, they say will be. Until you get to the very last one in verse 10, and again, Jesus says, Verse 10 in the present tense. Verse 10 says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And he uses the same blessing. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And so there's like bookends almost to the Beatitudes. Jesus starts with, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And he ends the last one with the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And those are present tense. All of the ones that are in the middle, as you'll see as we study, they're will-be's. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. All of these, it's talking about things that will happen. But this one, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not, he doesn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven will be theirs. He says it is theirs. And you know what that means? That means that from the very moment, your humble, poor in spirit heart acknowledges to God your need for him. And the very moment you come to him with empty hands, Asking for his grace, asking for his forgiveness. The kingdom isn't something that, that you wait to experience. He says, for the ones who are poor in spirit, the ones who come to me humble, begging, with nothing to give. The kingdom of heaven becomes yours in that moment. It's yours. It's there. It's not something that we're, we have to wait on. Because the kingdom comes alive in us. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. And, and what was dead comes to life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The good news of that is that you can come into the kingdom of heaven right now. But the only way is you have to come empty-handed. You can't bring anything with you. You can't come with a list of credentials. You can only come empty-handed.